you must partake of Jesus Christ to be spiritually satisfied. You cannot reject the meal offered to you this morning. You cannot reject the gospel without being left out of the promised land. You cannot merely be mesmerized by the power and the miracle power of Jesus. You must understand that the greatest miracle of all is regeneration, the new birth. The greatest miracle of all is that God would send His only begotten Son into the world to die on the cross as your substitute to express the fact that God is Jehovah Jireh. He has provided one sacrifice for His people for all time. And you must not walk away from the Savior. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 6 and remain standing for the reading of the Scriptures. Mark chapter 6. And I have chosen to entitle this section of Scripture in this sermon simply this, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Mark chapter 6, let us hear God's Word beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them coming or going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated as we beseech the Lord for his help this morning. Our Father, we read before us one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, one of the greatest miracles of our Lord. We have just sang, Lord, that you would 
break the bread of truth, even as you broke the bread on this day by the Sea of Galilee. We pray that you would feed us by your truth. Help us to see the significance of this passage, Lord, not merely to stand in awe of the miracle and the power, but to see our Lord's compassion and his grace, and ultimately what the feeding of the 5,000 pointed forward to, which was the breaking of the bread of your body, the pouring out of your blood to bring satisfaction, Lord, to bring salvation to your people. Help us to see this symbolism. Help us to see this illustration and help it to be spiritually true in our own lives, we pray in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we have just read here in this very famous portion of Scripture, the provision of bread and fish multiplied by our Lord to feed 5,000 people, It might be easy for us to simply read this passage of Scripture and think back to our childhood, maybe when we've heard sermons on this in the past, and to sort of overlook the details, to overlook the context, to overlook the things that the Spirit would want us to see if we have eyes to see what the Spirit would have us see this morning. This passage comes with a contextual and historical and theological context that if we miss, we will miss the value and the application of this passage. First of all, it has a contextual context. If you remember, we saw last time in the death of John the Baptist that Herod put a banquet on. This banquet that Herod put on is now being contrasted with the banquet that Jesus will put on in the feeding of the 5,000 by the Sea of Galilee. The first banquet had as its host Herod, a false, deceptive king. The second banquet will have Christ as the host, the true and final king. At the first banquet, only the socially elite were invited, but at this banquet, the common people take part in the meal that Jesus provides. At the first banquet, the cooks of the court prepared the feast. At the second, just the hands of Jesus provided the feast. In a miracle. At the first banquet, you have the impure entertainment of women. In the second, the pure exposition of the Word of God. In the first, it was climaxed by the death of John the Baptist. In the second, the one hosted by Jesus, there were words of eternal life if the people would have ears to hear. That is the contextual context as Mark writes, wanting to bring out this contrast. But there is also an historical context. Mark writes within a redemptive historical mindset, placing before us not only his own thoughts and the thoughts of the Holy Spirit as he writes, but also with in mind the entire canon of Scripture. All of the miracles of Christ, including their setting, their main characters, even their points of great detail, are not merely off-the-cuff, spontaneous displays of God's power. All of these miracles have a deeper spiritual meaning that when you look at the rest of the Holy Scriptures, you begin to see how all of these details come together. In fact, John tells us at the end of his gospel that there were so many miracles or signs that Jesus performed that there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain all of them if they were written down. Out of all of these miracles that we find in the Scriptures, it is only the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the feeding of the 5,000, which are found in all four Gospels. That tells us that this doesn't merely have significance for the people who experience this miracle, but this miracle says something to all of God's people for all time, people of the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. Jesus has come to the end of his Galilean ministry, and he ends it on a splash. The climax of his ministry in Galilee is the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew 14.21 tells us that there were more than 5,000 because the 5,000 was just a calculation of men alone, not counting the women and children. So this was potentially a crowd of 15, 20, maybe even 30,000 people. Contextually, it was important to the people that experienced it, but historically, Mark wants us to remember not only the multiplication of the loaves and of the fish, but also historically of the provision of bread that God provided for Israel in their wilderness wandering. In fact, even the isolation of the miracle, as Mark points out, it occurred in a desolate place, is meant to parallel Israel and the wilderness with Moses. In fact, three times in this passage, in verse 31, verse 32, and verse 35, Mark points out this occurred in a desolate place. To remind us, this is similar to the manna that came from heaven to Israel when they were in the desert. Not only the isolation of the miracle, but also the configuration of the people sitting in different groups. They were separated into groups of hundreds and groups of fifties, much like we read in the Old Testament that Moses put chiefs and leaders over the people, over hundreds and over fifties and over tens. The isolation of the miracle, the configuration of the people, and the provision of bread all parallels the manna that God provided miraculously to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. So this miracle not only has a contextual context, and it's meant to be contrasted with the banquet that Herod put on, an historical context meant to run parallel with the manna God provided to Israel in the wilderness, but it also has a theological context, and that is the point. Mark wants us to understand the theology behind this. A theology that is reinforced, actually in chapter 8 again, you don't have to turn much further to see in chapter 8 verses 1 through 10, another miracle, this time the feeding of the 4,000, a separate episode. Mark wants us to think in terms of the significance of bread, the significance of manna, the significance of even the Lord's Supper and what it symbolizes and most of all the significance of Christ who gave himself as the Lamb of God to be slain for sinners. He is our substitute. He is the one that was prefigured with that ram that was caught in a thicket the day that God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, and God provided a ram in the thicket to be a substitute And on that occasion, God revealed that his name was Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Jesus is telling us by the Holy Spirit that in the multiplication of the bread, which is symbolic of him and the giving of his body, is the expression of God as Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. God had delivered his people from Egyptian bondage. They ended up in a desert all alone with God. They were like sheep without a shepherd. The exact language that Jesus uses here to describe this massive crowd before performing the miracle. These loaves therefore remind us of the manna in the wilderness 
And also the fact that many in the wilderness never left the wilderness. They never entered the promised land because of their disobedience and their disbelief. A warning to us that many on this day when Jesus multiplied the bread, though they were physically fed, they were not spiritually fed. They rejected Jesus. We read that in John chapter 6 in his account that many deserted him because after he performed this miracle, he gave the bread of life discourse in which he said, that thing that I just performed over there was meant to point to me, I am the bread of life. And many of his followers deserted him. They walked away from him because they never truly knew him. Just as this miracle pictures Jesus as the bread of life who spiritually satisfies the spiritually hungry, it reminds us that in the Exodus there were those that were part of, we could say, God's visible church of the Old Testament that ate of that Passover bread and that walked through those parted waters and never entered the promised land and never had believing hearts. You must partake of Jesus Christ to be spiritually satisfied. You cannot reject the meal offered to you this morning. You cannot reject the gospel without being left out of the promised land. You cannot merely be mesmerized by the power and the miracle power of Jesus. You must understand that the greatest miracle of all is regeneration, the new birth. The greatest miracle of all is that God would send his only begotten son into the world to die on the cross as your substitute to express the fact that God is Jehovah Jireh. He has provided one sacrifice for his people for all time and you must not walk away from this savior. You must be in awe at the miracle of salvation that comes from his sovereign hand. And really that is what this miracle points forward to. There of course are other Old Testament symbolism that is implicit in Mark chapter 6. For example, we know that Jesus was a great prophet. He came and he preached. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that Moses predicted there was coming a greater prophet that everyone needed to listen to. We saw that Herod thought that Jesus was John raised from the dead. He was confused. John was really the second coming of Elijah, but... um, Herod thought that Jesus was sort of this John and Elijah figure. That's interesting because in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah goes to a widow, the widow of Zarephath, and he asks for bread. And you remember that story. She says that she only has a handful of flour in a jar. And Elijah says, well, you need to go ahead and make a meal for me and for your son. There will be enough. He says, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And the Bible says she went and did as Elijah said, and the jug of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Again, symbolism of bread pointing to the fact that the bread that comes from heaven, the bread that comes from God will never run out. Clearly pointing forward to the man in the wilderness, clearly pointing forward even to this miracle that Jesus performs here by the Sea of Galilee. That was Elijah, but then there was also Elisha. He told the man from Bel Shalisha to use 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain to feed 100 men. And you remember that episode in 2 Kings chapter 4, the man said, but what is this for a hundred men? 
And Elisha said, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them, and they all had some left according to the word of the Lord. We come to the end of this account in Mark 6, in the feeding of the 5,000, and there are 12 basketfuls of bread left over. I'm pretty sure that as the Holy Spirit inspired different men to write the Bible, that this was a story that had cohesion. And there was much symbolism regarding bread that pointed forward to Jesus. He is the greater prophet, greater than Elijah, greater than Elisha. He is the greater priest because he's not only the shepherd, but he is the sheep that he offered upon the altar of God at Calvary. And he is the final king. He's the true shepherd of Israel. As he sees these sheep scattered, he preaches the gospel to them, calls them to himself, feeds them a meal, but as I said, many this day received his miracle of physical food, but rejected his miracle of spiritual food of eternal life. We must not miss that this morning as we look at this miracle. And so with that background in mind, this miracle opens up to us with seven notes revealing Jesus as the true shepherd king of his people, revealing not only his power, but also his compassion His compassion to meet people's physical needs, but more importantly than that, to meet their spiritual needs by his own hands and at the cost of his own life. Jesus is the epitome of Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And I want us to see that as we look at these seven notes working through this miracle together. And I want to begin in verse 30 with the context described. The context described, verse 30. 30 says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Of course, they are returning from their preaching tour. We read about that in verses 7 through 13. They had been somewhat successful. They had cast demons out by the power of the Holy Spirit. They had healed many people. They had preached to thousands. There were many that were converted. But there were also those who had rejected the apostolic message. Jesus said in Matthew 10:40, "The one who hears you hears me, the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me." And though it would be hard not to take it personally, you can imagine that the disciples are tired spiritually and emotionally. They had been rejected, and we know that because Jesus said, "When you go to a village or a town and they don't accept the message of the gospel you preach, you're to shake the dust off your feet." After all that they had done and taught, as verse 30 says, there were still those who heard the message of the kingdom, but it fell on deaf ears. Maybe their ears were physically healed to hear, but their hearts did not hear the message of the truth. People were delivered from demons temporarily, but not eternally, because they didn't believe the gospel. This is always the reality of the preaching of the kingdom of God and the good news of salvation. There will be those who reject it. Even the most religious kicked them out of the synagogues. So they come to report the success as well as the failure from a human side of this preaching tour. They were no doubt physically drained from their, their travels. They were ministerially exhausted from their preaching. They were emotionally shot from constant rejection. And not only that, but they had just received word that John the Baptist, this beloved prophet, had been put to death. And the threat was even looming over Jesus because Herod was paying closer attention to Jesus now that Herod was dead because he was convinced that Jesus was John raised from the dead. 
So Jesus, as this text unfolds, is monitoring closely the activity of the apostles. Did they do what they were sent to do? And he's also monitoring their energy levels. He determines best that they need to take a break. And we see that in verses 31 and 32. We'll look at it in a minute. But in Matthew's account, in Matthew 14, 13, it's insightful because Matthew tells us that the reason Jesus seeks this retreat with the apostles across the lake was rooted in the fact that he heard of John's death at the hands of Herod. And so he wants to get away with the apostles. This is a turning point in his ministry, really the climax of his ministry in Galilee. Now that John is dead, Jesus is going to be the target. The apostles need some rest. But before we move on, let me just say that I think the Bible teaches us here the importance of physical and mental rest. The principle of Sabbath rest is not just one day out of seven. Sabbath rest must mark the rhythm of our lives. The human body, the human mind is not meant to go 100 miles per hour all of the time without causing stress on ourselves and one another. And those of us who tend to be workaholics need to heed that advice of seeking regular Sabbath rest. And those among us who might have a tendency to be lazy need to not over-spiritualize the concept of Sabbath rest. One of the built-in mechanisms to alleviate ministerial stress just from a ministry standpoint is the plurality of elders. R.C. Sproul comments, and I quote, we live in a time when churches are weak and one of the main reasons is that the people demand that the pastor do everything but preach and teach. He goes on to say, I believe about 95% of the labor of a pastor in the church should be preaching and teaching. The congregation belongs to the Lord. They are his sheep. He has given them pastors as shepherds to keep them fed, giving them food that will not make them sick, but will nurture them the very word of God. And here in this passage, Jesus sets out to feed his sheep because we see him teaching the sheep. I can tell you that I've held many jobs in my life. I've played many sports in my life. Many of those jobs and all of those sports required much physical labor, but there is no period during the week that I am more tired than on Sunday afternoon after I'm done preaching and teaching. There is a mental exhaustion, a a spiritual exhaustion that is associated with that, not to mention the stark reality of spiritual warfare that surrounds the ministry, not just in preaching and teaching, but in the other tasks. And that is but a picture of what is true of all Christians, what is true of all ministers needing the rest that God has established for us. If you work hard, you will know when it's time to rest. If you don't work hard, you may never know when it is time to rest. So Jesus helps the apostles to be more effective. They need to get away. So he wants to provide a period of rest. Now that is the context described. I want you to note with me, secondly, the care determined. And I've already introduced it to you, verses 31 and 32. Jesus' deep care for the well-being of his disciples leads him to tell them in verse 31, notice the text, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. The Greek word for desolate place simply means a quiet place or a solitary place. This wasn't the desert because we read later that Jesus set them down in groups on green grass. 
It's just a secluded place. It's a place out in the country where he can get away from the crowds, or at least that's his desire. We don't know the exact location, but Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9 and verse 10 in his account that they withdrew close to the village of Bethsaida. A couple of the disciples were from that little town. But what you need to understand is this is a spiritual retreat for these preacher apostles. And Jesus is clear. He just wants them with him. Come away by yourselves, just the twelve. And why is that? Well, not only the fact that they had just ended their preaching tour, but also the added pressure of the constant activity of people around them. As verse 31 says, For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Sounds like ministry. You finish one job and you begin another before the first job is done. And the result was they didn't even have time to eat. They couldn't find a few minutes to even grab a snack or to grab a meal to have proper rest. And I do think that the apostles set before us an example not only of how ministers should work, but how all of God's people should work, whether it's in the ministry and service of the church or it's at your vocation Monday through Friday. Someone once said that church ministry is rewarding and draining. Mary had a little lamb which was given her to keep, but then it joined the local church and died for lack of sleep. Some of you know what that feels like. But it's important to understand that Jesus doesn't need the disciples. He's not asking them to rest because he's dependent upon them. He is going to require them to participate in this miracle because he requires all of his disciples to be workers in the church. We are called to serve one another spiritually and physically. And Jesus models that before us. He demands of the apostles to participate in the midst of this food crisis. But he wants to prepare them for that with a little bit of rest. So we read in verse 32, And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. I think it's interesting that verse 32 says they went away in the boat. The definite article, the, indicates the fact that one of the disciples, maybe Peter or Andrew or James or John, one of these former fishermen, donated their fishing boat to Jesus for transportation in the ministry. And so they head from the west side of the Sea of Galilee, that is Capernaum, now to the northeast side. Jesus is determined to care for the apostles Again, a contrast is noted here. He is not selfish, but selfless. He is not like Herod, who was heartless and selfish. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is a true king. And he's modeling what a true leader does, caring for those under his charge. He is truly a shepherd. He is truly a pastor. He is truly a leader. In fact, the central verses of Mark are found in Mark chapter 10. If you go over there quickly with me in Mark chapter 10, and beginning in verse 42, Jesus said, or called them, that is the disciples, to himself, and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever should be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Why? Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. True leaders don't demand others to follow them and to listen to what they say. True leaders gain followers by their example of servanthood and care and compassion, which Jesus is displaying here. And amazingly, here Jesus 
who is the Lord of heaven and earth, is not lording it over the apostles in a compassionless, domineering way, saying, no, you need some rest. Let's get away and let's find some rest and, for, and some food for you. I do want to note that the apostles did not return the same gesture to Jesus. You remember back in chapter 1, Jesus had been interrupted from a meal and um, he leaves then rising early in the morning in Mark 135 while it's still dark he departed he went out to a desolate place the day before he had preached in the synagogue he had healed in the synagogue hundreds maybe thousands of people came to his home after that on the Sabbath he gets up in the morning to go away for some rest and what do we read it says Simon and those who were with him search for him Peter and the apostles send a search party to interrupt Jesus's rest But Jesus would do unto others as he would have them do unto him. Not how they actually did unto him. He would have compassion. He would not allow them to be interrupted any more than they needed to be interrupted. They needed rest. And so he interrupts their work to provide rest for them, even though they interrupted his rest to create work for him. Jesus has care for these disciples. And any pastor and any elder who is worth his weight in gold will have a tender heart and a compassionate heart toward those under his charge. That is modeled here by Jesus. But that takes us now to the third note that I want to make, and that is what I'll call compassion demonstrated. Verses 33 and 34. On the surface, Jesus' care for the twelve appears to be threatened by Jesus' next actions because he veers this little boat or has whoever is steering this boat back to the shore and back to the crowds. But as we'll see, this miracle was just as much market, if not more, about the apostles than it was about the crowds. Jesus wanted to teach them a lesson. And so we read in verse 33, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. This was a throng of people. And here's what you need to imagine. They began running around the shore, around that lake. And as they ran and as the crowd grew, people from surrounding villages and towns got wind that it was Jesus and the apostles. You have to remember this is the height of his popularity. Among this group, James R. Edwards in his commentary makes the case where the radical zealots, those who wanted to take Jesus by force to make them their king. And I think he's probably right because in John's account in John chapter 6, it says they would have taken him by force if they could have to make him king. But we read in John 6 too that a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. And so it's not hard to imagine what filled the hearts of those chasing Jesus' boat. Perhaps they thought it was their last chance to see a miracle or receive a miracle or hear a sermon. Others no doubt wanted to hear or touch this great popular preacher along with the apostles. But since this trip directly across the lake would have been some 15 miles, it seems clear that something began to turn in the heart and the mind of Jesus as he saw these crowds beginning to run around the lake. The wind was probably calm that day and my guess is that Jesus commanded whoever was steering this 
little voyage across the lake to not go straight across 15 miles but to turn back and just cross a corner where they could maybe find a desolate place but maybe now in Jesus's mind was not merely a secluded place but a place that could hold a lot of people because Jesus wanted to teach a lesson to the disciples and so maybe four miles across the tip of the sea the people converging from the lakeside towns running to see Jesus and so you can imagine this is sort of like the boat slowly crossing akin to an airplane circling an airport as Jesus spends alone time encouraging the disciples they needed rest and he was going to give them who knows how much rest maybe maybe an hour or so as they slowly sailed as the crowds gathered but one important point to make is that when it says the people got there ahead of them Do you see that there in verse 33? There is some uncertainty as to what the Greek actually means. And I want to take you to John chapter 6 for a moment. And I won't spend long on this. But in John's account, it says uh, that a large crowd was following in verse 2 because of the signs, because of the miracles he was performing. No doubt there were just curiosity seekers who wanted to see Jesus do something amazing. But verse 3 of John 6 says, Jesus went up on a mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. And then verse 5, lifting up his eyes, he saw the great crowd coming toward him. And then the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves occurs. So theologians are constantly asking these questions as you read these commentaries. Well, which was it? Was it when Jesus got upon the shore, the crowd had already gotten there ahead of him, that he then began to teach them and to perform this miracle? Or had he been there a while up on the hillside alone with the disciples and then walked down? Well, one possible solution is this. First of all, the Greek is a little bit subjective in terms of that translation that he got there ahead of them. But even if we take that translation as the right translation. One possible solution is this. The crowd's eagerness to get to Jesus resulted in them at points surpassing the boat ahead of where they anticipated Jesus to land as he looked for a secluded place. This doesn't necessarily mean the whole crowd got there and was waiting on shore. It just means as the voyage occurred and as the crowds gathered and some were in front of others more than the rest and some were in front of the boat at one point, but eventually, I think, the boat eventually landed first, as John records, and Jesus had some alone time there with the disciples before he saw the crowd. But in any event, verse 34 tells us that when Jesus saw the crowd, compassion filled his heart. Notice your Bibles. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. The word compassion is splachnizomai. It means to be moved in one's bowels. You're familiar with this Greek word because for the ancient Greeks, it was an intense word that spoke about warm feelings that were associated with sympathetic actions. And these warm feelings were felt in the pit of one's stomach. Not the heart, but the pit of one's stomach. Jesus was moved in his bowels with deep emotion. He felt sympathetic feelings he pitied the people to the point that he was compelled to address their needs both physically and spiritually he had compassion and so we read the reason why verse 34 because they were like sheep without a shepherd here is the key verse do not miss this this language sheep without a shepherd is used 
throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it may shock you how often this language is used and and how many different contexts this language is used. In Numbers chapter 27, we read that the Bible spoke to the Lord saying, who shall go out before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them out? The people of Israel, bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. So here you have again, sort of this reflection back of Moses in the wilderness, um, where the manna was given, you have the concepts of leadership, Moses and Joshua, and you have that language of sheep that have no shepherd. What about Ezekiel chapter 34? Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 34. The prophet Ezekiel speaks against the shepherds of Israel. That is, the leaders, the word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel 34, 1, verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. Not the type of compassionate leaders you should be. And what does God say through the prophet? Verse 5, so they, that is the sheep, were scattered. Because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Wow, this is the same language that is used here in Mark chapter 6 to describe the feelings of Jesus. He looked at Israel as if they existed in the Old Testament under Ezekiel as sheep without a shepherd. You remember in 1 Kings chapter 22, Micaiah, the prophet of God, he prophesied truthfully to King Ahab regarding the destruction of his forces in the battle against the Syrians at Ramoth-Gilead. You remember that Ahab had 400 other prophets that he gathered together and lied and said he should go into battle. Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. Don't you dare go into battle because you will be destroyed. The vision of the Lord has shown me that your forces look like sheep without a shepherd. They don't have a leader. You are not a good leader. You are not making wise decisions. This came from the Lord. Again, that language of sheep without a shepherd. So turning back to Mark chapter 6, in Jesus' day, this was also true, was it not? Politically and religiously, Israel had no shepherds. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They were beaten up by the legalism taught by the scribes and Pharisees, and subsequently they were spiritually malnourished because God's word was not being fed to them. And in fact, the religious elite were like wolves breaking into the pen. They were not true shepherds. There was a leadership void in Israel. So now the final prophet 
and the final priest and the final king had come to fulfill all of the imagery in the Old Testament of what the true shepherd king of Israel would be. And you remember Joshua in that language of Numbers 27. Joshua was a great military figure. And God said, these, these people are like sheep without a shepherd. You need a military commander. See, Jesus is not just a savior. Jesus is not just a prophet preacher. He's not just a priest that offered himself to save people spiritually from their sins. He is a king and he is a warrior and he has come to conquer this world for his own glory. He has come to call sheep from every tribe and every tongue and every language group. And that sort of imagery and that idea of Jesus is what is coming out of this passage. He is a king who can feed the entire world with his salvation. All of those that God will call to himself. All of the elect people from all time, from every corner of the world. Here you have this massive throng of people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And the Messiah, shepherd king, the Savior has come. They are desperate for a leader. They are spiritually hungry. They are on the verge of spiritual death. Isolated, all alone in the wilderness, wandering around. And here is Jesus, the great mighty conqueror and king now i want you to see that i'm not making this up so i want you to turn back with me to the prophet isaiah chapter 63 you say well pastor that's great theology where did you come up with it the old testament isaiah chapter 63 and notice with me in verse 11 then he remembered the days of old what days of old of moses and his people Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert they did not stumble, like livestock that go down in the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. This is the mercy of the Lord remembered, which is pointing forward to the mercy of the Lord that would come in the person of the Messiah. Perhaps a clearer passage of Scripture is just one book over, Jeremiah chapter 10. The prophet Jeremiah speaks with language of his own day regarding the idols and the false shepherd leaders. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 6, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your name is great and mighty. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Listen to this. All the kings of the world. We talked about civil magistrates last week. All the Herods of the world are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. He is the everlasting king. And his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Here is a king who is getting ready to multiply the loaves and the fish. But here is a king who also inflict his wrath on all of those who do not eat of his salvation again 
the prophet Ezekiel chapter 37, a prophecy of the new covenant. Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 24. My servant David, speaking about the Messiah, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. And they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. This is a parallel passage with Jeremiah 31 as well as Hebrews chapter 8, a fulfillment of the new covenant when the true shepherd king comes to establish his new covenant. And that's not to mention Nahum 3.18. Your shepherds are asleep, O kings of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. All the peoples of the world under every banner of every nation and every civil magistrate are like sheep scattered without a shepherd. They need a savior who will call them to himself and provide for them the satisfaction that only he can give. Because Jesus is the epitome of Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. He provides salvation to the world. And it therefore makes sense when we go back to Mark chapter 6 that before physically performing any miracle, Jesus begins to teach the people. Notice the end of verse 34, and he began to teach them many things. This is why Jesus came to preach. Mark chapter 1. Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And there were many things about the kingdom of Christ that he needed to teach. Matthew 14, 14 says, He saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. Of course, a shepherd who has compassion will demonstrate that, and Jesus did that on this occasion, but he quickly got to the teaching, principles about the kingdom of God. He was the good shepherd sent to meet the needs of his people. Isaiah 40, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those who are with young. Jesus did that with his words as he taught the people, revealing that he was the true shepherd, the true king of Israel. Ezekiel 34, 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. And what does Jesus say in John 10? I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom, that he is the final shepherd king that has come to Israel. So he feeds them spiritually before he feeds them physically with the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. And I just want to say this before we move on. The preaching of the word opens Christ's mouth to his people. Every Lord's Day, King Jesus addresses those in the court of his sanctuary and we must listen to his voice because he has words of compassion and grace He urges sinners to repent from their sin, to place faith in Christ in order to enter his kingdom. He is a shepherd that calls out to his sheep and his true sheep love his voice and hear his voice and obey his voice and submit to his lordship. That's ultimately what this miracle is about. And so we move now to the fourth note in this account 
And we'll look at it quickly. It's the contrast denoted. We've just seen the compassion of Jesus demonstrated. Now the contrast denoted. The hearts of the disciples, here in verses 35 through 36, is revealed, perhaps understandably so, because they're tired from their preaching tour, but they are not filled with the same compassion as Jesus was. Notice verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Maybe it's 4 or 5 p.m. It's likely springtime in the, in the year AD 29. April was the month. The sun would set at 6 o'clock. Soon it would be dark. There is a crisis that is on their hands. And so the disciples say, this is a desolate place. The hour is late. Send them away. Send the people away. Send the problem away, right? They don't have the same compassion. And here's where the story takes a turn. This story is really not about the crowds. It's about the disciples because Jesus makes the people's problem the apostles' problem. They don't have compassion. They think, well, maybe if we send them away before it gets too dark, they can go into the surrounding villages, buy enough bread, get them away from us, get the problem away, get the people away, the problem goes away. But notice what Jesus says in verse 37, just the beginning, but he answered them, no, no, no. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. This is the climax of the whole story. Jesus doesn't alleviate or relieve the potential crisis. He exasperates it. This is on you. You give them something to eat. And that then takes us to the fifth note. We've seen the context described, the care determined, the compassion demonstrated, the contrast denoted, now the command delivered. Verse 37, you give them something to eat. He's putting the pressure on them, isn't he? Now again, he doesn't need them any more than God needed Moses in the wilderness. Let me just go back to that occasion. You don't have to turn there. Moses, when the people complained in the wilderness, you know what Moses said? We read in the book of Numbers, God, where am I going to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me. They say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. See, Moses understood he wasn't capable. Jesus was capable, but here's what I want you to see. Jesus, as the second and greater Moses, does what Moses couldn't do and what Moses knew he couldn't do. Only God could do. But you know the disciples are so prideful, they actually think Jesus is being serious. Oh, you want us to solve the problem? So they begin to seek out solutions. Notice how they respond in verse 37 they said to him shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat now for them to think that was possible was ridiculous 200 denarii was a lot of money that was about 200 days of one's wages over half a year's work to feed this people even if they could come up with that money, where would they go to buy that much bread? 
the hour is late, so you come to the first village you find, they're not going to have enough supplies in the market, even if you had that sort of money. Again, John clues us in in his account on exactly what was taking place. He gives a little bit more detail in John chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus said to Philip, verse 5, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So this is the fuller description. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Even if we bought it, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough. What you need to see, though, is that Jesus said, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said, come to me. Jesus didn't say, go away from me. The disciples are telling the people to go away. They're purely focused on the physical. They're tired. They want a meal. They don't care about the people. It is quite amazing that after their preaching tour, they would be reduced to this. But we're all sinners, right? We're all motivated by wrong things sometimes, but not Jesus. Even, even in his most difficult moments, he's thinking about others. He wants a solution, so he provokes the disciples to find a solution. Philip sort of found a solution, but he couldn't execute it. They didn't have that kind of money. So Jesus just continues to give these commands. Why is he giving these commands? Because these are the under-shepherds of Jesus, the true shepherd, right? Jesus is going to be gone soon. The apostles need to understand what their priority is. They must what? What did Jesus tell Peter? You are to feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. That's why in Acts chapter 6, the apostles finally said, you know what? Jesus is right. We cannot wait on tables. We must devote ourselves to the study of the word of God and to prayer. We are preachers. We must what? Feed the sheep. Feed the sheep. Jesus is sending all sorts of messages in every conversation, every word, every sentence that he says, every action he demonstrates, he is teaching, he is discipling, he is showing compassion. He wants the apostles to understand their chief duty of feeding the sheep, caring for the sheep. Like Moses, they needed to remember the burden of ministry was too great for them to bear themselves. They don't get it yet. They think Jesus actually wants them to find a solution. They're incapable of that. Jesus wants to bring them to a breaking point. He is developing and setting up a crisis among the crowds and he's setting up a crisis in the hearts of the disciples. Why? To reveal his glory, to reveal his power. And Christian, the Lord will do that in your life, maybe on smaller scales, but he will allow potential trials and tribulations to enter your life so that you come to the point of being broken and being humbled, so you call out to the Lord for help. And what does the Bible say? If you humble yourself, he will lift you up in due time. The Lord is in control. And don't forget, he's full of compassion. This isn't some sick game of a sovereign God. He has your best interests at heart, just as he did on this day. But Jesus gives another command to the disciples. Notice verse 38. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Now again, 
Back in John chapter 6 and verse 8, it says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Got to give it to Andrew. Philip hits a wall, finds a solution, can't execute it. Andrew goes out, finds this young lad, but then he comes to Jesus and he says, But what are these for so many people? Give him a little bit of credit, but finally they are beginning to see they can't navigate through this, can they? They need Jesus. This bread, by the way, was like a flat bread, probably looked more like a pancake, had the texture of a biscuit. The fish was probably pickled, and there were five and two. This was the lunch that would fill the tummy of a young boy. This is not something that could feed the masses. Andrew sees that, but Andrew also apparently doesn't have the faith to see that Jesus could do something with that. You see, the disciples are focused on what they don't have. Jesus is focused on what they do have. The solution is not among them. It's outside of them, but Jesus is with them. He is the solution. So now he stops delivering commands to the disciples, and now Jesus just takes over. He begins directing commands to the crowds. Notice verse 39. It says, He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. The green grass, perhaps an allusion to Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. There's not a funeral I preach where I don't mention that passage because it reminds us of the comforting, shepherding guidance of God. All the orderliness and calmness has now entered the scene. There was a panic among the crowd, a panic among the disciples. Jesus pronounces demands that can't be met and now he takes over. And the people, imagine this, a a group this large actually could be organized by Jesus in the midst of their panic. And they calmly sit down in that green grass. They sat in these groups The appearance was more now like a picnic than a panic. And Jesus separates them into manageable parties by hundreds and fifties. All of this at the obedient action of Jesus. They all obeyed. The disciples obeyed. The people obeyed. Jesus was in total control. By the way, another allusion to Moses. Exodus 18.25 says Moses chose able men. He made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. This whole thing is being set up to be a second coming of the wilderness wandering and the manna that came from heaven. Jesus wants them to experience what they had for so many generations heard about and had been passed down through their family. God supernaturally provided them manna from heaven in the wilderness and now he will provide manna for them, bread for them. What occurs after this in John 6 is what is referred to as the bread of life discourse where Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is building all of this up to this climactic point where they have nowhere to turn but to Jesus. What will he now do? He delivers these commands and things start to happen. And that takes us to the sixth note. 
His creation displayed. His creation displayed. Verses 41 and 42. Now as we note here, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people and he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. Jesus didn't hear create ex nihilo, that is out of nothing, but pretty close, right? Five loaves, two fish. I mean, think about this. He took the five loaves, he looked up to heaven, and probably according to the the Psalms, as often was done, holy hands lifted up to heaven, eyes lifted up to heaven. He's getting ready to say a blessing for a minuscule meal for thousands of people. Reminds me of the story of George Mueller. Some of you have heard it. He ran an orphanage. And one morning his cook came to him and said, we have no food for the children. He said, no problem, set the table. They put the plates on the table, the silverware on the table. They all sat down. He sat down at the head of the table and he began to pray to ask a blessing on the food they didn't have. Step of faith. As soon as he said amen, there was a knock at the door. He went to the door and the local baker had stopped by and said, I baked too much bread you wouldn't happen to want this, would you? So they had bread that morning in the orphanage. Mueller didn't perform a miracle, God did. But Mueller prayed. Prayer works. Jesus prayed and performed a miracle. And and I really love this because it is very likely he prayed the common Jewish prayer that heads of every household prayed with their families over meals. And it went like this. Praise be to you, O Lord, our God, King of the world. Listen to this. Who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. This is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And so the miracle began. In verse 41, he gave the loaves to the disciples To set before the people, he divided the two fish among them. I just want to say this. Traditions are good if they're rooted in Scripture. Hymns have been sung for generations, standing for the public reading of Scripture as Old Testament and New Testament precedents. Prayer with holy hands lifted up, even written down prayers that we read has precedents as Jesus recited this one. Gathering on the Lord's Day for worship has Old Testament precedent, New Testament example. Even the way a sanctuary is structured and decorated can reflect tradition that pleases God. It's not tradition that Jesus opposed. It was bad tradition. And just skip ahead to chapter 7. What does Jesus say in verse 8? Little principle. You leave the what? Commandment of God for what? The tradition of of men. Jesus wasn't against tradition, lifting up of holy hands, reciting a prayer, looking to heaven. Jesus was against tradition that replaced the commands of God. But here he uses the apostles, doesn't he, in this miracle? They distribute this food. One commentator says this miracle could have been performed ex nihilo and God could have had this bread float down to the groups on pink parachutes. But he didn't. He used the apostles. He didn't need the apostles. 
He doesn't need us. We're jars of clay, aren't we? Jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God, not to not us. God makes his appeal through us. Jesus creates bread, and we then become the hands to disseminate this bread of the gospel to the world. That is what is symbolized here. We participate with Christ in disseminating the bread of life to the lost and dying world as we proclaim the gospel. We are the hands of Christ. We are the feet of Christ. You know, I often think about this little lad's mother who faithfully packed him a lunch this day. She didn't know when and where he'd be eating. Sometimes, like this mother, we view our day-to-day routines as mundane, but actually God used this mother in a way she could have never imagined. I think that's an important reminder to moms here today. You play a crucial part in God's kingdom. Parents, you play a crucial part in God's kingdom to bring your children to Christ. God will find a way to bring your children to Jesus if you're faithful in the small things, just as he brought this boy to Jesus on this day. And in keeping with Mark's brevity, he gets to the point, verse 42. It says, and they all ate and were satisfied. I I love the way Mark describes this because he doesn't describe the miracle. You know why? Because it's a miracle, it's supernatural, it doesn't have an explanation. Perhaps uh, like ushers, as the disciples pass these stacks uh, or this, this bread down, that just another cake comes up on the bottom sort of imperceptibly. And as one cake is handed down a row, another one appears on the bottom without people knowing. I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but I know this wasn't a snack to tie them over. It says, verse 42, they were all satisfied. Their bellies were full. That's the beauty of this miracle. Sometimes you don't know when miracles occur. I believe miracles still occur today. Not at the hands of some human instrument, but sovereign intervention where laws are suspended for a moment, perhaps a medical miracle, perhaps God rescues you from death with no explanation, that still occurs. God still works that way. Sometimes you may not even know it's happening. I remember when I was a youth pastor, a young age of 19, and... Um, I lived at the church, the apartment above the church, we lived in a small college town, and I used to get five or six high school boys to go play basketball at the local courts. We would have pickup basketball games, and I invited a whole bunch of them to come over one night. It was late at night, probably nine or ten o'clock. We began walking down to the basketball courts, which was about a quarter of a mile from the church, and we got bored along the way, and so I challenged them to a race. And uh, in order to get to the basketball courts, you had to cross some railroad tracks, and uh, so not soon after the race started, I was 40, 50 yards ahead of everyone, and I heard the train whistle. And like a stupid, foolish young man, I said to myself, I can not only beat these kids, I can beat this train. And just as I got to the track, I looked to my left and saw the train in the distance and went to cross With my right foot across the track, I'm on one leg, and something told me to look one more time, and when I looked to my left, the blinding lights of that train were right there. I don't know how, there is no explanation, but something pulled me back, and I could hear or feel the wind blow in my hair. I heard the steps of the boys, and they came running 
shocked to see me because they swore that I was hit by the train. Now, I don't know if a miracle occurred that night or not. I don't know if some laws of nature were suspended or if I just came inches away from getting hit and have really good balance. But this I know. The point of this miracle is that you will die in your sins unless the hand of God feeds you eternal life. This is God's creation on display. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides not just this physical food, but spiritual point food. That's the point to see. And please don't mimic some 19th, 20th century interpretation of this passage, one which said that Jesus deceptively filled a cave near the Sea of Galilee with an inventory of loaves and fishes. He had a flowing robe with loose sleeves, and when it came time to feed the people, the disciples formed a factory line, passing loaves and fish to him through the back of his robe, and he then distributed them as if he created them out of thin air. This was no hoax. Trust the simplicity of the word of God, the power of the word of God. You don't need an explanation for the supernatural, do you? Do you have faith to believe this? I hope you do. Well, notice how the account ends. You may be wondering if that compassionate care that Jesus said he had for the disciples, that they might have rest and food, you might wonder if that ever comes. Well, it does. We've seen the context described, the care determined, the compassion demonstrated, the contrast denoted, the commands delivered, the creation displayed, now the calculations discovered. Verses 43 and 44, they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. I don't know if these 12 baskets represent the newly constituted Israel. It's possible they do because the final shepherd king has come. He's calling his people to himself. But on a practical note, those 12 baskets were meant for the 12 apostles. They were the leftovers for them to have their meal they were looking for and to enjoy the rest Jesus had promised them. Notice there were 12 not 13. Jesus wasn't concerned about himself. Selfless giving. That was his whole life. That's why he came. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But I'm convinced that maybe the disciples learned a lesson or two about compassion and hopefully shared a piece of fish and bread with Jesus. Verse 44 says there were 5,000 men. Of course, that's not counting women and children. A crowd as large as 20 or 30,000, which is amazing because the largest towns nearby, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, they had one to 3,000 people in them. So you had people from all sorts of towns and villages. His physical feeding of this crowd was meant to picture the spiritual food he offers in his message of the kingdom. What did Jesus say? In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall what? Be satisfied. Back in verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. But as we close, turn to John chapter 6. Because what occurred here, after this miracle on the next day, was tragic. Jesus preaches his bread of life discourse. He says in verse 26, the next day, John, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You still don't get it. 
you got a free dinner, now you want a free breakfast, but you have no clue about what this means for your eternal soul. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. You don't believe. Verse 66 says, After this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life verse 69 and we have believed we have believed some that day understood some that day understood some that day were spiritually rescued some that day understood jesus as the holy one of god as peter says there in verse 69 he is the holy one of god but he is not to be messed with. Jesus is compassionate as a shepherd, as seen here. But there's another side of him. Revelation 6.16 says that he is a lamb full of wrath. To reject the bread of life is to reject your only hope, to be rescued from spiritual malnourishment. Don't work for the food that perishes. Don't try to earn your salvation. Don't trust in religion. There were many religious people this day who deserted him. Don't trust some superficial infatuation with Jesus. There were many that saw the signs he performed and died in their sins. Don't trust the works of the law. That was the religious establishment, the false shepherds. Listen to me. Trust in Jesus because he alone satisfies. He is the epitome of Jehovah Jireh. He always provides salvation. He always will. He is the only means. And if you open your mouth, he will fill it with his grace and with his forgiveness. Don't leave today without seeing Jesus as Jehovah Jireh. He is who you need for your salvation. He is who you need for eternal life. He is who and what you need beyond any bread this world offers go to jesus and feast on him let us pray father we thank you for such a an amazing miracle feeding of the 5000 which is really the feeding of thousands more lord the amazement of the power of christ is beyond us but to think that even greater than multiplying the loaves and the fish was the greater miracle of the new birth, salvation, eternal life, 
resurrection. Lord, we are so grateful that he is the one who feeds us so that we do not die in our sins. Help us, Lord, to believe in Christ and to look to Christ, to trust in him. We thank you for his provision. He is the manna that has come to us from heaven. He is the gift, the greatest gift ever sent into this world. Help us to love him and to cling to him and to trust him. He is the shepherd of our souls. And Lord, he will not lose one of his sheep. We thank you for this great and glorious comfort. We pray these things in his holy and blessed name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.